Welcome to the latest episode of the Climate Conversation. I'm Dan Brissett, Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And with me, as always, my intrepid co-host, uh, ESI Communications Associate, Sydney O'Shaughnessy. Hey, Sid, how are you doing today? Hey, Dan, I'm doing well. Um, today is a really great episode because it's our 10th episode. We finally made it to number 10, our first double digit. So I am really excited. And this episode is actually going to be our quick recap of our Congressional Climate Camp number three. We did the same kind of recap for the first and second one, just in case if you missed that two-hour event and you want to catch up with the event in a shorter audio format. And there was a lot to catch up on because uh, last Friday, um, March 26th, we hosted Congressional Camp, Congressional Climate Camp number three, and we had four really tremendous speakers. Um, by coincidence, all women um, in, uh, I guess, recognition of National Women's Month, I'll just point that out. But we had four really wonderful speakers join us to help us understand current attitudes uh, about climate policy, uh, turning points in climate policy history, the importance of bipartisanship, and then from a staff perspective, what staff, congressional staff should know about climate policy going forward, specifically how did we get where we are today and what do we need to do going forward to make things better and also to improve our chances of success? It was a really excellent briefing and I uh, hope that you, uh, even if you like today's podcast, I still recommend you going back and watching the full archive, archived webcast. I totally agree. I watched the whole event live. It was really awesome, but I think we should just jump right in and go through each of the speakers and really talk about what their their main points were. Um, the first speaker was Kathleen McGinty, who is the Vice President of Global Government Relations at Johnson Controls. And she talked about what set the stage for the way we think about climate change on a policy level. So her presentation was all about the key turning points in climate policy. So now I'm gonna cut to her and you can listen to her talk about two foundational building blocks for how we think about climate change. I think the first question is really important because so much of what was building block over the last couple of decades remains foundational to how we're thinking about and acting on climate change. Although I think it's very exciting to see the kind of maturation of how rich the thinking has become and the action. So to, to toss out two kinds of foundational building blocks. So from the earliest days of environmental policy broadly, it was about understanding those point sources, those particular sources of environmental insult, if you will, of sources of pollution and going after them with particularized regulation. The big change from that came in something called Project 88 in 1988 that said, you know, some elements of challenge to the environment don't operate just in a discrete way, but operate in a regional or global basis. And there we need some new tools. How about if we harness the forces of the market to be aligned with what's needed for environmental protection instead of there being a tension. 
And it was in that process that the idea of cap and trade was born as the original kind of, or one of the original kinds of market mechanisms. And boy, did it hit the ground running. Um, you know, 1988, just an academic paper. 1990, the centerpiece of the Clean Air Act amendments. Uh, and very shortly thereafter, proving its effectiveness in driving, for example, acid rain you know, out, those sulfurous emissions out, and proving to be very effective. Now, fast forward to what those foundational blocks have led to, you can really trace right back some of the key policies that are so effective today. Market mechanisms became important, not just because of cap and trade, but because it started to talk the language of finance. And so today, when you think about things like Germany having jumped in with, with their feed-in tariffs 15 years or so ago, and then our own production tax credits and investment tax credits, and now the real greening of capital markets, we at Johnson Controls were a pioneer in being one of the first industrials to float a green bond in the U.S. capital markets. These are brave new tools, but they definitely have their roots in those policies that took root 30 plus years ago. That was great. Uh, Katie is um, a real expert. In, in climate policy. Our second speaker, Tina Johnson, uh, Principal Johnson Strategy and Development Consultants and the Director of the National Black Environmental Justice Network, uh, joined us to talk about climate policy then and now in advocates' perspective. Um, I want to just conclude and just say that um, stakeholders are effective um, when they can strategically integrate their issues into the broader concerns that we're facing. And I would say that within the context of climate change, stakeholders have been really successful in integrating the climate change framing um, of the issues that, uh, that I've just laid out for across the board for many communities, many countries, um, with more traditional concerns around air pollution, land rights, and, and environmental justice. And so the role of um, stakeholders, I cannot impress upon you um, enough that uh, collectively we do a lot more um, when more effectively when we are fighting for things and uh, engaged in things that really resonate for across communities um, and not just across um, silos. Um, and so I um, want to say thank you uh, for just the opportunity to be here and, and, and I will open it up or give it back to you, Dan, for questions if there are any. Thank you um, so much, Tina, for a great presentation. Um, really appreciate you joining us today. Um, we do have some time for a discussion and I'm interested in um, digging a little bit deeper into a couple of the things you said. Um, maybe I'll start with sort of one of the last points you made and I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit because I can only write so fast. Um, you said something to the effect of, um, uh, this work is done best when there is a strategic integration of climate change into ongoing debates. And I'm wondering um, if, you can, if you can think from your experience of times when that's been successfully done, 
when climate has been strategically integrated into the federal policymaking process. Um, I'm wondering if you could provide an example or two that you've seen that work well, and, and perhaps an example too where it didn't work well, or it was too much of an afterthought to make much of a difference. Yeah, I, I think that it's a good question because um, the answer is, of course, there are things that have worked well when you've integrated policy. I mean, Cal California is a really wonderful example of climate, a state that gets the need to really integrate climate policy into the way in which it wants to operate, whether it's through electric vehicle, um, um, electric vehicles or uh, greenhouse gas reduction and taking the lead when the federal government has sort of lacks behind and now is the poster child for all things green. You look to California. Um, but I would, so, you know, they have this, you have, um, these are not, um, these are not necessarily uh, policies that I would support. I want to just preface that, but that they are there. So you have Reggie in some states where, you know, they're looking at ways that they can use this system that's part of the international community to, to, bring down greenhouse gas emissions and to really find a way that um, communities, that state level action can take hold and really start to look at what the needs are at the local level to engage in um, this approach to, um, to being a champion on, on the climate and also looking at ways to enhance innovation and opportunities for communities um, as we're moving into this, this new future that looks green for all of us. But there are always these, um, these caveats because uh, not most of the policy that we see that's implemented doesn't always take a multi-stakeholder approach into consideration. It's usually your first speaker spoke about business and you know business is super important. The economic development is super important, but when that is more important than the actual cumulative impacts on communities that are suffering the most or disproportionately impacted uh, because the modeling that's done doesn't represent the need to take into consideration equity, justice, health impacts, or cumulative impacts, um, the policies, even though they're promising at reducing greenhouse gases, don't necessarily promise a healthier, cleaner, safer, um, pollution-free environment for communities that need it the most. Um, so I, I just like to put that in context because there is a lot of really good policy um, that we are seeing enacted but there are flaws in it because of what they leave out um, in, in their implementation and, and the impacts. I really loved hearing her perspective on what it's like on the ground, um, being an advocate, being in activism. Our third speaker at the event was Dr. Laurel Harbridge-Young, Associate Professor at Northwestern University. I honestly loved this section of the, the briefing because it talked she spoke about current attitudes, and I love thinking about how people are perceiving climate um, at a national level, and her presentation really spoke to that. So I want to begin by thinking about the value of bipartisanship. So first off, bipartisanship is important for Congress as a whole. So when we think about um, the need for Congress to govern, that the majority party in particular cares about a record of success, um, that in the, even in the highly polarized period that we're in today, it's important to keep in mind that most major laws still pass with significant bipartisan support in at least one chamber. So in fact, there's recent work by fellow political scientists, James Curry and Francis Lee, who point out and you know, show with convincing evidence 
that over time, uh, bipartisanship is roughly the same now as it was 30 years ago in terms of the bills that become law. There are lots of bills that don't become law that are party line votes, messaging bills, and so forth. But things like the Affordable Care Act or the Trump tax cut that passed on party line votes are the exception, not the rule. And particularly in these recent time periods, it's also important to keep in mind that the successful cases of bipartisanship often entail working with party leaders in both parties early in the legislative process and not simply trying to pick off a few legislators from the minority party late in the process, basically just by making you know, a few concessions at the end. Sometimes that can work, but oftentimes it may be more valuable to kind of build a broader stakeholder process in bipartisanship earlier on. And our final panelist is Anna Unruh-Cohen. Anna is the staff director of the House of Representatives Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. We don't often have uh, congressional staff join us for the briefings, but we thought for this one, for Congressional Climate Camp number three, we thought Anna would be a great fourth speaker to help put everything in perspective for people working on Capitol Hill on these issues right now. Um, but I think, um, you know, the, the energy bill in uh, the end of last year um, should give everyone some hope that we can find um, some way forward. And we have you know, things in front of us like infrastructure that do have bipartisan support or can have bipartisan support. Um, and um, so, um, and we also have, uh, you know, a reconciliation process um, that we just used um, for the COVID response and uh, the American Rescue Plan um, that obviously is not, um, um, can't maybe deliver as comprehensive response to climate as we would like, um, but certainly can make some key investments that we know will bring big benefits, um, whether it's in um, clean energy tax um, or um, other investments um, that exist uh, for, for existing programs um, in energy over at the Department of Interior and ag on the natural side of things. So, um, you know, I think it offers um, a positive way forward if we ultimately um, have to use that. Um, but, um, you know, uh, the president is is pivoting um, to his Build Back Better agenda. And um, we know that it's popular. And so, um, you know, I'm hopeful that our Republican colleagues um, will engage um, in a way that, you know, we can put a, a bipartisan infrastructure bill together that's good um, for, um, for people and communities um, and helps advance us on the, uh, towards climate action. So if you liked listening to these snippets of all the different speakers at our latest Congressional Climate Camp, I really recommend that you go, just like Dan said earlier in the episode, and listen or watch the whole recording on our archive on our website at eesi.org. Couldn't agree more, Sid. Um, I hope everyone has a chance to do that. Um, and we also have some really excellent briefings coming up. Um, you're listening to this today. Uh, Tuesday, March 30th, we have a briefing where we're going to be looking at some issues around nuclear decommissioning, nuclear power plant decommissioning. Um, so if you're missing that, 
Uh, or if you missed that, please go back uh, to the website, www.esi.org and check that out. Um, we will also be looking at affordable housing coming up um, around some resilience issues. Uh, the fourth installment of Congressional Climate Camp is set for the end of April. It's gonna be about uh, double whammies, things we can do in the near term to um, achieve mitigation and adaptation benefits. Um, that's gonna be a really excellent uh, fourth installment of Congressional Climate Camp. And we have so much more. The best way, I say this in every introduction for every briefing, the best way to keep up with ESI is to sign up for our biweekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. You can do that by visiting us, visiting our website, www.esi.org. Climate Change Solutions and the Climate Conversation come out on the same day. And so if you're listening to this and you like it, I bet you'll also really enjoy our newsletter. Absolutely. And be sure to sign up before next Tuesday so that you can come and read all of our stuff that's coming out and catch our next episode, which is going to be all about plastic waste. And we have really great um, guests joining us for that. But as always, if you want to learn more about EESI's work, head to our website at eesi.org. Also follow us on social media at EESI online for all of our recent updates. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. Go to eesi.org slash sign up to subscribe. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.